Well, turn with me to Matthew 5. We are going to wrap up our examination of verses 27 to 30 this morning and then move on into verses 31 and 32. Uh, But as we were looking at verses 27 to 30, let me just briefly review some of the things that we saw. Uh, We see that in this, Jesus focuses on the deed of adultery, the desire behind the deed, and deliverance from it. There in verse 27, he talks about the deed. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What he's telling him is that this is what the rabbis have taught you. They they have told you that God's standard is that so long as you don't commit the physical act of adultery, you're righteous. Uh, But sin is not simply what you do. It's what you feel and think in your heart. And so just as back in verses 21 and 22, they said you shall not commit murder. Jesus says everyone who's angry in his heart shall be guilty before the court. What he's saying was, I'm telling you that it isn't just a matter of whether or not you do the murder. It's an issue of what you feel in your heart. Here he's saying the exact same thing, only using another illustration. And so these people that were listening to him that day, hearing him confront them about their anger, about the lust in their heart, would have had to admit by virtue of their own consciences that they were indeed sinners. And the fact that they had never killed anyone, the fact that they had never uh, actually uh, sinned sexually, uh, did not exempt them from the sinfulness of that reigned in their heart. And the same applies to us. Jesus wants to go right to the heart of man and show them that no matter what they've done, they don't fit in the, into his kingdom. So, as we said, the Pharisees had this view that so long as you didn't do the physical act, you were okay. And Jesus says, that's a problem. And he corrects them, verse 28, where he says, I say to you, it indicates that the problem they had was that they had taken the simple statement of the Ten Commandments and turned it into an outwardly, uh, outward act alone. So long as you didn't do the physical act of adultery, you were okay. Uh, and you were right before God, you deserve to go to heaven. They had reduced the law of God to a simple external, and Jesus says, they haven't given you the whole story. They've told you that you don't have to commit adultery, and that's it, you're okay. I'm telling you there's much more to this than that. And then he, see, he does deal with the desire there in verse 28. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks, that word that's used there is a present tense participle. It refers to continuous, ongoing looking. It's not an inadvertent, incidental, or involuntary glance. It's an intentional, repeated gazing. It It is the purposeful, repeated, lustful looking. It isn't an involuntary, momentary glance at all. Uh, It's purposeful. And he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, and listen, he doesn't say commits adultery. Instead, he says everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because it's the vile, adulterous heart that results in the wanton look. The sin has already happened in the heart. The adultery is conceived and thus the look is prompted. When you latch on and cultivate and pursue the desire, it's because your lustful, adulterous heart has already been seeking an object and you fulfill the fantasy that's already there in your heart. 
Now notice the word lust. It's, it uses a Greek grammatical structure which refers to purpose. We might even translate it with a purpose to lust. So you could read verse 28 this way. I emphatically say to you that whoever continues looking on a woman with a purpose to lust for her gives evidence of already committing adultery in his heart. The continued look is the manifestation of the vile heart. So what Jesus is saying is it's the heart is the problem. It's not lust, lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart. It's the sin in the heart that causes the lustful looking. Uh, the lustful looking is only the expression of a heart that is already immoral and adulterous. Uh, and so Jesus says we have to deal with the heart because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's the issue. And so he says your problem's too deep for your self-righteousness to handle. And just as the lust of their heart was too much for their self-righteousness to control, it's the same with us. Apart from the active work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to keep us focused on God's word rather than the desires of our sinful hearts. And then he goes a step further, and this is the final point, and we didn't finish it last week, and that's the deliverance, verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to, into hell. Now we explained last week, Jesus is not saying that there is a physical remedy for a heart problem. Uh, he was speaking of what has been called spiritual mortification. And he is simply saying there's nothing too precious to eliminate from your life if it's going to cause you to pander to its adulterous desires. Anything that causes a man to remain in his sin and to satisfy the cravings of his adulterous heart should be eliminated, even if it's the most precious thing you have. Nothing is so valuable as to be worth preserving at the expense of righteousness. Sin must be dealt with radically. Paul said uh, over there in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, I beat my body, I make it my slave in order to gain control over it. And so Jesus calls for immediate action. He diagnoses the problem and he says, tear it out, cut it off, eliminate it, whatever it is in your life, whatever it is that feeds your heart of lust, whatever it is that feeds your adulterous thoughts, get rid of it. Uh, and there's kind of a subtlety to this whole thing. Let me ask you this question. Could the scribes and Pharisees have gotten rid of their problem of lust? No, obviously not. They couldn't. Jesus is giving them an impossible standard, a frustration that's going to make them say, We've tried and we can't do it. Uh, and he has said, you're better off to have no eye and no hand than to go into hell. They ought to be like a lizard that's willing to sacrifice its tail to save its life. Uh, but they're going to say, we can't. We can't do it. We don't know how to be delivered from the problem of lust. And so he's forcing them to come to the point of desperation so that they will say, we must have someone do it for us. We must have a new heart and a new life. And that's precisely what the Lord offers. He offers a heart like that 
which the great hymn writer Charles Wesley once described as a heart in every thought renewed and filled with love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Uh, and so Jesus forces them to see that they need a new nature. For those who are genuine believers in whom the Spirit of Christ is living, they have that new nature. They have that new heart. And they don't need to follow the panderings of their own lust. They can know victory over that. I have to admit that as I studied to teach this lesson, I came under a fierce attack uh, from both Satan and my falling flesh to succumb to my purient lusts. Uh, I haven't had a battle with lust that hard in quite a while. Uh, why? Two reasons, I believe. First of all, this is a very convicting lesson. Um, and so Satan wants me to become a hypocrite and stand here and teach you what God's word says while living a double life. Uh, and since we all normally have to battle and struggle against lust, Satan would like to destroy me in this area. Second, I think Satan doesn't want you to be convicted about your struggle against lust. He wants you to be happy to go through life lusting after someone else without any thought that it's a serious offense against a holy God. He wants you to think, oh, well, I can't beat it, so I'm not even going to try. So what if I want to look at some pornography once in a while? So what if I want to fantasize about someone else? I mean, what's wrong with reading the menu so long as I don't eat the food? Uh, and when you adopt that attitude, the result is that you will be a weak and ineffective Christian. But you can, as Job did, make a covenant with your eyes. As Colossians 3.5 says, you, you put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. You can know victory. But a man without Jesus Christ, a woman without Jesus Christ, is a constant victim of this. We should be grateful that what the Lord has given us is a resource for victory so that we don't need to have a constant losing battle. Uh, we never need to lose if we appropriate the resources that are there. Uh, you see, we cannot mortify our flesh by ourselves. Uh, willpower will simply will not do it. Paul tells us in Romans 8:13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Likewise, he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can only do this by the power of Jesus. You see, as I said before, that brings what brings in uh, as what what begins as unrestrained thoughts in the mind will eventually become an action, and then a habit, and then your character, and finally your destiny. One of the observations that I've made through the 40 years that I've been involved in ministry in this church is that many times those who apostatize from the faith first began their journey toward heresy by means of ongoing immorality in their life. Uh, when one's willful conduct contradicts one's theology, either the conduct or the theology must change. Uh, 
you must understand that much of the heresy that we observe today has roots that are moral rather than intellectual. Therefore, you must realize that what people do with their eyes and their hands can affect the eternal destiny of their souls. I remember Steve Kreloff telling the story that when he was a student at the Moody Bible Institute, he and Phil Johnson uh, would sometimes be scheduled to go to the studio of WMBI, the uh, college radio station, and answer calls on the phone line that was there for people who had a Bible question or wanted counseling about some spiritual issue. And one evening when they were there, Steve took a call from a man who claimed to be a Christian and said he wanted an answer about certain biblical questions. But as the conversation progressed, it became clear to Steve that this man held some views that were clearly heretical and he was very argumentative about them. Uh, Phil was listening in on the call, but he was not interacting with the man. And finally, Phil wrote Steve a note which said, ask him if he is involved in some kind of moral sin. So Steve asked the man and immediately the man became irate with him. And as the conversation progressed, it became very clear that his heresy was all based on the fact that he was involved in some kind of immoral sexual activity which he was unwilling to give up. It was easier for him to change his theology than to stop his illicit sin. And thus he revealed that his heart had never been truly changed in the first place. He was an unregenerate sinner who was self-deceived into thinking that he, would, he could still be a Christian while holding on to his sin and his heresy. Now folks, we must not become smug and self-righteous just because we haven't committed this act of adultery. Instead, we must recognize and admit that we too have adulterous hearts. Uh, we must never suffer the delusion that this can never happen to me. Uh, we must never let our piety and spiritual accomplishments dull us to our potential for sin. Uh, we must mortify the very members of our bodies. If our eyes, hands, and <clears throat> feet are causing us to stumble, we have to take desperate measures to keep that from happening. If we're stumbling because of what we're seeing, we must make a covenant with our eyes to stop, to leave the scene if necessary. We must not give in to what others think. We must expect some misunderstandings and even ridicule when we make godly choices. Uh, when your friend or family member says, you've got to be kidding. You mean you haven't seen such and such a movie? Or you haven't read the book? Oh, wow, are you ever a prude? At those times, when you're feeling like some kind of strange weirdo that everyone else thinks is a relic of the Victorian era, just remember that Jesus says it's better to be a cultural amputee than for your whole body to go into hell. So if God is telling you to change your visual habits, do it for your soul's sake and that of your family. If God is saying a relationship must end, then do it today. Or perhaps there's some pleasure that's okay for others, but it's causing you to stumble and you know it has to go. If so, get rid of it right away. You cannot do it through your own willpower. Obey God with humility and prayer. Ask him for strength and then do what he says. 
And that brings us to the end of those those verses. Any uh, questions or thoughts before we move along? Okay. Well, let's begin our study of verses 31 and 32. Let me read them. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we begin this study, let me <clears throat> just say that I recognize that some of you in this room have been divorced at some point in your life. I realize that it was probably one of the most difficult situations that you've ever been through. And so I want you to know that the things that I will teach about it are not intended in any way to shame you or to make you feel like you are less worthy to God or less important to this church. Nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> I have spent my entire life around divorced people. Uh, although I had the benefit of growing up in a home uh, in which my parents were never divorced and remained married for 63 years until my mother's death, and although neither Marsh and I have been divorced and we have been married for 45 years, I have spent my entire life around divorced people, listening to them talk about its impact in their lives and witnessing the outworking of those impacts. I went to school with fellow students who were from homes where their parents was, were divorced. I worked with many co-workers who were divorced. Um, statistically, 75% of all police officers are divorced at some time in their career. Uh, I have many close relatives and friends who have been divorced and remarried multiple times. In fact, when Marcia and I first started dating, her dad, a professing believer who grew up in a Christian family, left her mom for another woman after 23 years of marriage. Uh, I got an up-close personal view of the devastating impact of that on Marcia, her mother, and her brother. Uh, it was so frightening to Marcia and hurt her so deeply that initially she was scared to agree to marry me. She said to me, if my dad would, could leave my mom after 23 years, how can I be sure that you won't do the same to me? That's how frightened she was. And after we did marry, we had virtually no relationship whatsoever with him for the first four years of our marriage. He didn't walk Marcia down the aisle of our wedding. Uh, he refused to pay his alimony and child support until one day in court when the judge gave him a choice between paying it immediately or going to jail that day. Uh, it wasn't until after our daughter was born that he began to repair the relationship at his new wife's insistence uh, because she wanted to have a relationship with grandchildren. And although we got together for holidays through the years, that relationship was never completely repaired until a couple of years after Marcia's mother's death, which was 21 years after we were married. So I have had to deal with the impact of divorce in my own family. Uh, as a side note, let me just add that you should never stop praying for your lost family members. Uh, even though my father-in-law always claimed he was a Christian, we never saw any fruit of genuine salvation in him until about seven years before he died at the age of 86. 
Uh, the Lord graciously answered Marcia's prayer. We saw a real transformation in him then. He apologized to Marcia for all he had done, and he began serving the Lord faithfully in his church. So don't stop praying for your wayward, unbelieving family members. Now, when I was growing up, divorce was considered strictly taboo among most people who were considered very religious. Uh, both Catholics and Protestants alike treated divorce almost like the unpardonable sin. Uh, divorce in those days required that there be some legal grounds for divorce, uh, some kind of allegation of infidelity or abuse in, a, in order for a court to grant such. Uh, it was not like today in which we have no-fault divorces for nothing more than the vague term incompatibility. Uh, and so there was often great stigma and shame attached to someone who had been divorced, even though they were not the guilty party who wanted and initiated the divorce. Among evangelicals in various churches and denominations, there's often been wide disagreement over what the Bible teaches about divorce. And I think that much of the confusion and disagreement and difficulty which people have over the issue of divorce is not because God has given us a confused picture in the Bible, but rather it's due to the fact that many pastors are afraid that if they teach what God's word clearly says about divorce, there'll be major problems within their churches. Either those who have been divorced will be angry at them and possibly leave the church, or they think that they're going to open up a crack in the door for those who would like to be divorced to find an excuse to do such and claim that it was on biblical grounds. Uh, but God is very clear in the Bible about the issue of divorce. Uh, the confusion comes when you try to fit God's standard into the lack of standards in our own society. Uh, the difficulty is not with God. The difficulty is with man, and we need to understand that from the very beginning. Now, as we study these two verses, I do not think we would do justice to this issue, uh, to the issue of divorce and remarriage, by simply dealing with what Jesus says here in Matthew. Uh, I think we have to deal with what the rest of Scripture has to say about this issue. Otherwise, we would conclude these two verses with an incomplete picture, and that would contribute to more confusion. So I will tell you now that I, will, I plan to cover much of what the Bible has to say about this issue so that we can get a full understanding, not only of what the Lord is saying in this passage, but other places as well, that, uh, which will clarify things and expand our understanding. And I have to be honest with you, we probably won't even get close to these two verses today in our study because there's just so much background that we need to look at first. So with that explanation of what I hope to accomplish, let's get started. In a book titled The Death of the Family, written way back in 1971, a prominent South African psychiatrist, David... Way back. Yes, way back in 1971. No, 1971. Folks, that was 40 years ago. A prominent South African psychiatrist, David Graham Cooper, advocated completely abolishing the family unit as we know it altogether. He said that the family was responsible for destroying the sexual and social independence of the individual and that the family does violence to children. Uh, he stated, bringing, quote, bringing up a child is bringing down a person, end quote. He was a Marxist, 
And so he stated, quote, the family is the primary conditioning device for a Western imperialistic worldview, and we have to get rid of that, end quote. Of course, the truth was that he hated his own parents. He lived a debauched life of drugs, alcohol, and women, and he died at the age of 55 of chronic alcoholism. Kate Millett, who was a well-known liberal feminist, also wrote a famous book published the same year, 1971, uh, titled Sexual Politics. And in this book, she wrote, quote, the family unit must go because it is the family that has oppressed and enslaved women, end quote. That has always been the agenda of the truly radical feminist. Just six years ago, our Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell versus Hodges that homosexuals have the right to marry. And since that time, the homosexual is dominated, uh, movement has dominated almost every area of our society so that there's now an entire month of the year, June, that is considered Gay Pride Month. Uh, and anyone who advocates for traditional family units and values is ridiculed and shouted down as a bigot. We all know the statistics on divorce in our nation. Almost 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. Now, admittedly, since 2016, the divorce rate has decreased, but, but that is because the studies have shown that millennials aren't getting married as early in life as previous generations. Instead, they just live together for a long time, and then after several years, if they decide they're compatible, they finally get married. So if they break up after a couple of years, that doesn't count as a divorce uh, in the statistics because they never got officially married. But researchers estimate that, get the, listen to these stats now, 41% of all first marriages end in divorce, 60% of all second marriages end in divorce, and 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. Those are some telling statistics, aren't they? Every 13 seconds there's a divorce in America. That equates to 227 divorces per hour, 6,648 divorces per day, 48,523 divorces per week, and 2,419,196 divorces per year in the United States alone. That means there are nine divorces during the two minutes it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows. The average length of a first marriage is about eight years. Today, 15% of adult women in the United States are divorced or separated compared with less than 1% in 1920. 50% of children in the United States will witness the end of their parents' marriage. Half of those kids will witness the breakup of their parents' second marriage. Children of divorce are 50% more likely to marry another child of divorce, and they're 35% more likely to have a divorce of their own. Teens in single parent and blended families are 300% more likely to need counseling. Interestingly, they're more likely to develop psychological problems than even those children who lose a parent in death. Children from broken homes are almost twice as likely to attempt suicide. So the harmful effects of divorce on children, parents, and the family and society as a whole are staggering and would be more than enough to be concerned about the problem. But the supreme tragedy of divorce folks is that it violates God's word. 
The bottom line on divorce is not how it affects society. The bottom line is not a relativistic morality. We don't say it's wrong because of what it does to individuals, families, and society. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. And so we don't want to get into a sociological argument because this is something that must be dealt with on the basis of what God's word says. And unfortunately, that's not what the church is doing in most cases today. Churches today give little or none or even wrong guidelines on marriage and divorce. There are many churches and pastors who will marry anyone who walks through the door. Uh, I know for a fact that Steve, Joe, and Jack have all had to turn down people who wanted to get married in which one was a professing Christian and the other was not. And we have clarified our marriage policy here at the church so that we require both parties to be professing believers and at least one person of the couple to be a member of our church. Uh, that way we have a reason to deny the homosexuals who go around trying to find a church that will refuse to marry them so that they can sue that church. Uh, if you don't have a rule like ours and you willingly marry heterosexual couples who are not members of your church, you have no legal basis for why you refused to marry a homosexual couple who asked you to do so. And, but with our rule, you do have that. That's why we could allow Janetta and Bart to get married here at Lakeside. She was a member, and he's a believer. That's how we got married here, because she was a member. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's who you know as a But not all churches do that, and there are plenty of churches and pastors who will marry anyone to anybody under any circumstances. There are many young people who marry the wrong person for the fulfillment of fleshly desire with little or no thought about its real consequences. But I want us to see what God has to say. Now, I will state up front that I hate divorce. And it's okay for me to say that because in Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. So I'm in agreement with him. Uh, and while I hate divorce for what it does to families and individuals in the society, my primary reason for hating it is because in most cases, divorce is a violation of the word of God. And that's the important issue to me. Now, as I said, many people are confused as to what the Bible teaches. And my hope is that when we're done with our study, you won't be confused anymore. One reason in, is that there are four basic interpretations of what the Bible teaches on divorce and remarriage. And all four are found in various Christian circles. So let me give you these four options. First, some people teach that divorce and remarriage are not permissible in any, for any reason or circumstance. Uh, that is the strictest view. Second, other people teach that divorce is permissible under certain circumstances, but never remarriage. At no time, no way, never, ever for anything. Third, others teach that divorce and remarriage are permissible anytime for any reason whatsoever, or that, for that matter, no reason at all. It's, it's just okay. And the fourth view says that divorce and remarriage are both permissible under certain limited circumstances. So those are the four views. One, no divorce ever. Two, divorce but no remarriage ever. 
Three, divorce and remarriage whenever or whatever. And four, divorce and remarriage only under certain limited circumstances. Some people come along and say that they have another view, but once you break it down and analyze it, it fits into one of those four views. Now the question we want to ask and find the answer to is which view is biblical? All of the proponents of each view will claim that their view is biblical. But we need to put the issue to the test of the Word of God and see which one holds up. Now, in trying to discover what the Bible really says, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees are in Matthew 5.31. They had developed an erroneous view of divorce and remarriage, and Jesus confronts them with their error and sets the record straight. Now, let me set the context for you. Jesus is still confronting the sins of the Pharisees and unmasking their hypocrisy. God had a very clear command regarding marriage and divorce. And because they couldn't live by that standard, they invented a new standard, called it God's standard, and said, look, we're obeying God's law. We're righteous. They had dragged God down to their level, invented their own code of ethics, and then to make matters worse, they misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view, which is what we see happen all the time. People make up their own view, and then they find a verse that they rip out of its context to go with it and say, look, this is what God says. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They decided that you ought to be able to dump your wife whenever you wanted to, for whatever reason you wanted to, and so you ought to be able to get a divorce whenever you got the whim and the will to do it. So they twisted the scripture to fit that view. And the scripture they twisted into a pretzel was Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which we will look at a little later. And so what we find is that in verse 31, Jesus presents their view, and then in verse 32, he gives his view. He says, it was said, but I say to you. So what verse 31 is basically saying is that they tolerated divorce for any reason. But then Jesus says, I'm just the opposite. I don't tolerate it. I only allow for it in a very limited situation. Otherwise, there's to be no divorce. Now, before we get into these two verses, let's go back to the very beginning and see how this all began. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. And here we find that God has made Adam and Eve, first making Adam and then Eve, and this is what happens. Adam meets his wife. Verses 23 and 24 say, The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his, his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this is where you have the beginning of God's view of divorce. In, it's in God's view of marriage. You cannot understand divorce unless you understand marriage. You will never understand how God views a separation until you understand how he defines the union itself. And here we find that God has brought together a man and a woman into a monogamous, lifelong relationship of one man and one woman. 
There is no termination clause because once something is one flesh, you cannot divide it. Now notice the words, be joined to. Uh, he shall be joined to his wife. Those are very important words because they reveal the nature of the marriage bond. The way that God intended it to be. The word means to stick to, to be joined to, to adhere to. It has the idea of being glued to something. A man and a woman become glued together, as it were. Not in the sense that you say, I'm stuck with her, but in the sense that God has stuck you together, you are glued together. When two people are glued together, they become one single unit. Let me give you an example. Marcia and I own a very beautiful dining room table that we bought a couple of years ago. Interestingly, it's made of mango wood from Vietnam. It's quite beautiful. And the tabletop is made of several pieces of that mango wood that were glued together during the manufacturing process. Now, I don't look at our table and say, look at that beautiful collection of pieces of mango wood that for the time being have been temporarily glued together and to form a tabletop. No, I look at it and I say, that's a beautiful tabletop. I see it as a single unit, which will remain a single unit, hopefully for many, many years, long after I'm gone from this earth. My point is that we, are, we no longer see those pieces of wood that are glued together as individual pieces of wood. We don't think, well, I really don't need a table this large anymore, so I'm just going to cut off this piece of wood at the end and throw it away. No, the wood will remain glued together as a tabletop for as long as the table exists. And in the same way, God glued together Adam and Eve as husband and wife, and so it says, they shall become one flesh. That statement surely refers to the sexual union, but so much more. He unites a man and woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond that reaches to the very depths of their soul. And so marriage as God designed it to be is to be the perfect welding of two people together into one. They're not just two anymore, they're one. Yes? I use that example many, many times. I say two different metals are welded together. They're two different metals, but the weld is stronger than either one of the metals. Right. When welding. You concentrate on the weld. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So they're not two anymore, they're one, and one is an indivisible number. Uh, it's the commitment of two wills. It's the blending of two minds. It's the mutual expression of two sets of God-given emotions so that the two become one. The goal is a perfect oneness, both in the intimacy of the physical and the intimacy of the spiritual and the sharing of those things in life that cannot be shared and are not shared with any other human being. God created sex and God created procreation to be the fullness of expression of that oneness. But if all there is to the relationship is the sexual and there's not the oneness of spirit, then the sex, physical act is meaningless, self-centered, and exploit, exploitative. In God's definition of marriage, there are only two, and the two became one in every sense. 
And if husbands and wives would realize that this is God's definition of marriage, they would realize that a divorce would be like a man cutting off his leg because he has a splinter in his foot. Instead of working to remove the splinter, he amputates the whole leg. Husbands and wives who realize that that God has joined them into a single entity shouldn't be so foolish as to cut off the other because they know that when they do, they hurt themselves. And so when God brings a man and woman together, it is to be a permanent relationship. That's why Matthew 19.6 says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That word translated separate is used in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 as a synonym for divorce. So what God, what Jesus said then is, what therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce. And he says in Matthew 19, 8, that from the beginning, that is, when God established marriage back in the garden, divorce was not a part of his plan for marriage. Since then, marriage as an institution, since marriage is an institution of God, then any marriage is, in that sense, a joining of two people by God, which means any marriage is by default against God's law when divorce enters in. I believe that all marriages are are God joining those two people together. It isn't always a spiritual union if they're not Christians, but it is always the institution of God because marriage is God's invention. It isn't some kind of cultural norm which is developed through the millennia of man's existence here on earth. Now, God never intended for divorce, and yet people enter marriage today with the idea, if it doesn't work out, we'll end it. In fact, there's a reality TV show called Married at First Sight, in which so-called experts match up a couple who agree to marry at first sight. And then if they don't think things are working out, they can bail out. So far, after several seasons, the show has a whopping 34% success rate of the couple staying together. And among those that are still together, most of them are going to marriage counseling. But the couples willingly marry someone they've never met before, and they do so with the attitude that if this doesn't work out, we'll get a divorce. No big deal. But if we see marriage the way God sees it, we know that it is a monogamous, lifelong oneness that God has ordained. As I said, divorce is like amputating a leg when you have a splinter in your foot. What do you do if you get a splinter in your toe? You deal with a splinter. You don't cut off your leg. And in the same way, instead of dumping your partner, why don't you deal with the issue that's causing the problem? God considered marriage to be so sacred that any violation of that marriage union was so serious that the penalty for it was death. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Listen, God so hated anything that defiled marriage that the penalty was death. Now, there are some people who say, oh, well, that, you know, that was way back in the Old Testament where God was wrathful and harsh, but now in the New Testament, he's a kind, forgiving God who doesn't act that way. No, that's wrong. God hasn't changed his standard one iota. 
His attitude hasn't changed. Back in 1 Samuel 15, 29, he were told that the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And in Hebrews 13, 8, the writer says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Since Jesus is Yahweh in flesh, then he is God and he is immutable. He does not change his standards in the least degree. You say, well, Bruce, why don't we execute adulterers today? Because while his standards haven't changed, we're in a different dispensation of how God administers and carries out his justice. The church is not the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God set his standards for how his chosen people, the ethnic nation of Israel, was to carry out his law. But today we're in a different dispensation and God's means for carrying out discipline on his church, on, the, on his children who make up his church is by means of church discipline. So churches and their leadership are responsible to carry out church discipline in cases of adultery that arise in their midst. Those churches and pastors who are unwilling to do so will have to answer to the Lord for their failure to obey his word in that regard. And God will execute his justice on the unrighteous, unregenerate, unregenerate adulterers when he returns. Now there's a difference between how God deals with various sexual sins. And you'll have to wait until next week for us to discuss that. I just looked at the clock. Prayer, please. Our Father God in heaven, we praise you for your great love for us. You are God. There is none other like you. And you are holy, Christ holy. And um, you know our, our, our status, Father. And yet you love us so much that you gave your son to pay for our sins. Thank you, Lord God, for that, for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you, Father, for Bruce's teaching today and his clear explanation of your word. Pray, Father, that um, you will continue to uplift and support our church and its preaching of the gospel and, and the truth and protect your uh, church family here. We ask that you do us deep now as he uh, preaches the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, and you are dismissed.